ready for technology to work for you and not against you, technology should be seamless to your organization and enable you to accomplish more faster. Boyd Tech Solutions has more than 20 years of experience assisting organizations with networking, infrastructure, wireless servers, virtualization, cybersecurity, voice over IP phone systems. They can assist you with large deployment projects, manage services, and become your IT department without a huge monthly cost. Visit BoydTechSolutions.com or call 936-647-6093 and let them be your technology implementation specialist. Hello there, I'm Kimberly Hayes Day Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to Season 3 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We are a dynamic duo bringing you insight and knowledge into the ever-evolving world of grants, development, and fundraising. It's also a real possibility that we might break into song, mm. talk about pie, mm. or refer to you dear listeners as y'all. All y'all. Uh, yes, and we hope all y'all will subscribe to the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by our Season 3 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Hey, don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, and grant mock review. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. So hello there, dear listeners. In the past three seasons, we have shared tips on grant research and writing. We've relayed grant fraud ripped straight from the headlines. We've even compared fundraising events to Downton Abbey. <laughs> that was me. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> what we haven't done yet is highlight the good works of organizations who are working hard to make the grant world a better place. And that all changes today. We are excited to speak with Janae Richmond, Director of Marketing and Membership of the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. And I'll refer to that going forward as NCRP, just to make sure I don't stumble all over everything and uh, I have not properly caffeinated yet today. A product of the Chicago Southland, Janae holds a BS from Bradley University and graduated summa cum laude from St. Xavier University with a Master's of Business Administration. Um, again, you know, the typical underachiever that we have on our podcast because, yeah. She began her professional career as a small business owner, and it was through the company's community outreach program that her eyes were opened to the various issues that plagued the neighborhoods right in her own backyard. Janae used her graduate studies to delve deeper into social and economic impact of business practices, as well as leading and managing change. So you're seeing the joke about underachiever, right? You're following me already. Prior to joining NCRP, Janae coordinated field efforts for one of the top congressional races in the country and for local progressive candidates and organizations. Working at NCRP, she has continued her quest of creating systemic change while working with philanthropic and nonprofit organizations across the country. Thank you so much, Janae, for being with us today. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. 
Well, Janae, Kimberly and I first heard you speak at an annual conference for the Grant Professionals Association, and we were so impressed with the work you do as the Director of of Marketing and Membership for NCRP. Um, So for those that don't know about NCRP, can you share with us your mission and how your organization got started? For sure. Um, So let's see. Let's travel back to uh, the late 60s. (laughs) (laughs) We like to go back in time. (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) So after uh, the Tax Reform Act of 69, there was a commission put together to um, talk about private philanthropy. But missing from those conversations were communities, nonprofit leaders. And so a person who ended up being one of our founders uh, wrote a piece in a publication, some of the uh, more well-known publications picked it up, and therefore it made its way in front of members of the commission. Uh, This person was invited to uh, speak to the commission, um, and that was an opportunity uh, for them to pull together a group of nonprofit leaders, activists, people of the community um, who could speak to, you know, what was missing in that conversation. And so they formed what was called at the time the Donate Group. Um, they talked about, um, you know, access, accountability, transparency, um, equity, the power dynamics that are involved in that relationship. Um, afterwards, they felt like this was a long-term need. And so from that, NCRP was born. Um, and I can share our official mission statement. It is uh, that we promote philanthropy that serves the public good, is responsive to, uh, responsive to people and communities with the least wealth and opportunity, and is held accountable to the highest standards of integrity and openness. Um, so honestly, when I look back at you know that time period, um, the person that I was speaking of, one of our founders, um, wrote a piece on the Hisfield blog. Uh, his name is Pablo Eisenberg. Uh, he actually, uh, you know, in his words, really described an NCRP that I still know today. So, you know, we That's still talk nice. about transparency and access. Uh, we still talk about the power dynamics. Uh, we still bring people, communities, nonprofit leaders into conversations that they're usually excluded from. So we're still representing, you know, the will and, and the needs of the people in that way. Um, and, you know, if we looked at it and we weren't the same organization, like that would be totally fine. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with growing and change, but it feels really good to have served the sector um, all these years in that way. Nice. And it, I was interested and a little surprised, but in a good way, to see that you actually have a 10-year strategic plan. But given what you've just explained to us, now it's all starting to make sense. Because I know a lot of nonprofits now, they used to be like, we have a five-year, now it's a three-year. Now they're like, ah, a six-month plan, because things are so crazy as we were recording all of this um, now during um, the COVID pandemic. But as a part of your 10-year strategic plan launched, I think in 2016, um, NCRP states that philanthropy must play a meaningful role in building a fair, more just, and more democratic nation, which is a beautiful plan to have and something that we very much need. Could you please share with us uh, some examples of, of that you've seen of this idea in action? Sure. Um, I don't want to take too much credit. (laughs) I think this is, I've only been in NCRP for uh, a little over five years. So that's a a decent amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think um, normally we have had shorter plans too. Um, And I also want to give credit to um, one of my colleagues who leads our like internal evaluation work. And so, 
we haven't just set on this path and don't have a way to make course corrections. Sure. Um, you know, we we are coming together to kind of reassess things. Um, but yeah, we, we want to um, focus on a fairer, more just, more democratic nation. Um, and I think to really ground that conversation, we have to look at who we are as a nation. Um, and so as much as we love this country, we know that it is deeply inequitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can think back to, um, you know, Native tribes and their first encounters with the settlers. Um, and we can think about, you know, uh, subsequent dishonesty and broken treaties and, and such things that transpired after. Um, we can think about uh, black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and to let viewers know, I am a black woman. Um, so we can think about black people and, um, you know, our entrance into this country and, you uh, building this nation and never really receiving any compensation for it. And in years uh, after freedom, um, you know, never really getting an opportunity to fully thrive and be a part of this country as we should have been. Uh, And this even goes to like present day, there are still inequities Mm -hmm. of present day. So uh, just the other day, um, I was responding to an email uh, about why people should look at vendors of color. And I talked about venture capitalists And um, I can't get the numbers exactly right, but I know like 1%, I think they said, uh, in, you know, research that's been done, of venture capitalist funds go to Mm -hmm. black entrepreneurs. I think women is like 3%. Um, I wanna say like 87% of it goes to white males. And so you can kind of like break out the other demographics based on that. Um, And then even with the recent, um, you know, loan programs Mm -hmm. due to COVID and so the paycheck protection program, um, there were, uh, you know, watchdog groups. I saw a CBS article that were listing concerns about where that money was flowing. And so I think they were, you know, raising the alarm that they estimated like 90% of people of color would miss out on those loans. Um, and the breakdown was like 95% black, I think 91 Latinx, 91 Native American, Pacific Islander, uh, and like 75% of Asian businesses would miss out on that. And so, um, you know, hopefully we can look at that and see like how that impacts people the present day. I love kind of giving that example because that's like, you know, in 2020, you know, uh, in the year of Skype, in the year of Zoom, (laughs) in the year of all of these things, you know, this is happening right under our nose. And I don't know that, you know, any of us, even on this call, um, made a, um, you know, wrote a letter, gave a call to our Congress people and said, hey, hey, like, this is not okay. Um, and so even now, like, these things are, are happening. Um, so, you know, we, um, um, so yeah, so to tie it back to NCRP's work and, and the mm-hmm. way that we see philanthropy, uh, we really just want philanthropy to not, um, you know, that negates that this is the world that we live in. Uh, and so what can funders do to um, better this world that we live in? If you were taking a road trip, so to give that example, um, if you were taking a road trip, I know a lot of people are you know, going back to that form of transportation. I took two road trips this year. Uh, they were nece- necessary, but I took two road trips and I know many who took others. Um, if you had a car and like the check engine light was on, um, if the the tire had recently been patched and you kept needing to put air in it, you wouldn't set out on that road trip and think that you're going to have a safe journey, that you're going to have a good journey. Uh, you would probably get that car service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we see some funders stepping into that role of 
um, wanting to, you know, service the vehicle that is America so that we all can have a safe journey to whatever is in our future. And so, you know, anything that um, gives money to people who are on the margins of society, um, anything that gives money to the issues that those groups face are ways that funders can build um, this better society. So uh, I can give examples of, you know, funders who support voter suppression, which is mm-hmm. a huge issue right now. Um, maybe some people are tapping into like 501c4 funding and getting that out to organizations as needed. Um, there are some people who are convening leaders um, of color who are going to, you know, guide us in the, in the future. And so people who are investing in the capacity of those leaders. Um, there are, you know, bailout funds. And so different reasons for that. Some are related to the protests. And so the people who are speaking against the injustices um, and people wanting to support that effort. And then there are other bailout funds for um, people of color who cannot afford to be bailed out. And we know that if people stay in prison for longer uh, while they're waiting, you know, the next steps um, that can have deadly consequences. And why that's important is because of the inequity that happens in this country, uh, people of color usually don't have access to the resources to get themselves out of bail uh, as other people in society do, um, our white brothers and sisters. And so, uh, you know, anyone who is stepping into that work, um, who's thinking about communities that are normally like I said, on the margins, um, mm-hmm. you know, is a, a funder or is a way philanthropy can support uh, bringing about a better society. I, I feel a tiny segue coming on, and I would like to ask you about this if it's okay. And I, I, so I'm in the Atlanta area, and we have a lot of the major family private philanthropic foundations that I would not say are sort of necessarily moving in that direction. Primarily, um, They've been around for a long time. They're primarily um, white-led, and then there are all sorts of issues surrounding why, how they got all that money that they're stewarding to begin with. So that's a long story there. But I'm also seeing and really appreciating, have personally donated to some sort of that mutual aid societies that, or there sometimes they're not even necessarily 501c3s, but it's sort of springing up at a at an extreme grassroots level, and I didn't know if you have um if um you've worked at in through ncrp with those smaller agencies that are providing aid but may often don't have that long-term infrastructure that um other philanthropic organizations may have um so we for sure um try to call attention to the fact that what capacity looks like in communities Mm -hmm. of color Mm-hmm. may be different than what mm-hmm. um, some people are used to. Um, so I've had conversations with our nonprofit members where people were concerned about, you know, the activists who were planning the protests and some mm-hmm. of them, you know, weren't associated with any organization. Right. And so it was like all the work that they were putting into, uh, you know, community organizing, how in the world would they get resources that they needed during the pandemic to supply for their families. Um, and so we try to encourage foundations. Uh, We did a piece a few years ago called Ask the South Groves, and we took that on directly and talked about that capacity could look different. Mm -hmm. Um, We actually just had an interview with a disability rights activist who is also a person of color, and um, that person talked about how they themselves, with their disabilities, with their brown skin or, you know, however they show up in a space, 
um, they did not feel like it was best for them to incorporate as a nonprofit entity right. um, because they knew that there were so many barriers when they go to philanthropy to try to get resources. And so I think they incorporated their work as like an LLC. Sure. So I think for sure there's a need to be open and to be flexible with the types of you know, work people are funding and, you know, people in communities are looking to, um, I think, you know, usually we see a lot of even individual donors, which is where most of the funds go to groups Mm -hmm. anyway. um, People tend to look at really large and like well-known organizations. And um, it's my personal hope (laughs) that we get people more aware of like smaller organizations. Um, I think it's a problem with marketing. You know, <laughs> uh, I think of the sure. work that it takes to build some of the other brands and, you know, the busy lives that people live. And it's just a lot of folks don't make that connection, uh, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because then you have people who are misinformed that this work is not happening or, you know, people are not trying these efforts. Um, and that leads to, you know, frustration, duplication, right. things like that. Absolutely. Well, and that's one of the things when Kimberly and I first started this podcast, you know, it was originally a, hey, we can share news about grants, but got excited about the possibility. You know, there's so many other things that we can share about and bring light to, and it is recognizing some of these smaller organizations and doing things like that. So, um, we're with you on trying to get the news out about them. Small but mighty. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's amazing what grassroots organizations can do. So, yeah. um, Well, I love you. You mentioned transparency a couple of times, and we really love that that's highlighted on your organization's website and that it's part of the cultural norms of NCRP. Um, how can other organizations make transparency an integral part of their own culture? Sure. Um, so I think people can be transparent about uh, their data. Um, there's a real lack of transparency there in the sector. Lots of people who are working on that. And so I think if folks can provide consistent grant level data so that people can see, you know, what in the world is going on um, on a consistent basis, that would be tremendously helpful. Uh, People can be transparent about the investments that they make. Um, And so I am a lover of animals. Um, I had an aunt who thought I would be a zoologist when I was younger because I love animals so much. Um, and so I'm, I'm not saying this to be like shady or anything, but, you know, if you <laughs> if you are someone or an entity that, um, you know, is funding like a Save the Whales campaign, um, but then you are making your investments into the number one polluter, sure. um, you know, there's yeah. definitely a conflict of interest. I think of it as like a cancellation of efforts. Um, yeah. So, you know, there are similar things where people are, you know, funding pieces of democracy, but then they're making investments into like private prisons and different things like that. Um, and so I think being in that and being uh, transparent there can be helpful and maybe it will, you know, lead to some investors who can help you to invest your money in different ways uh, to reach out. And that's the connection you need. I don't know. Um, for sure, there's an area uh, like proposals and the procedures of a, a foundation that would be helpful. Uh, (laughs) people can't see me but i'm making the please please face because yes Mm -hmm. i have lots of thoughts about that janae yeah so um you know how in the world can i access um what you're doing what are you doing um so there's a there's a lot of places there where people can be open and honest about the criteria and everything just to not um you know perhaps waste uh grantees times i've heard stories of 
uh, nonprofits flying all over the country and not having any return for it. And especially when I think of smaller grassroots organizations and a limited capacity, um, you know, it's a shame to kind of use their capacity that they do have in that way. Um, I've also, you know, I had um, a situation I was at like an event and uh, a woman was there and she was on her laptop in the middle of this presentation and she asked a question, but she in the question, she gave insight into what she was doing. And so she was the only um, English speaker at the organization she was working at. And so all of the work fell on her. Um, so, again, that's just like to highlight capacity um you know, the criteria, the policies, and then also, um, you know, to be more accessible to folks who are having different needs. Um, another example of that that I've seen is some funders um, have done like video or not video. Um, you could do it like a voicemail application, which is super helpful. <laughs> wow. You know, I've never um, heard of that. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Um, <laughs> that sounds great. Uh-huh. Oh, or how about those funders that will accept other, like, have you submitted a proposal to another agency? We'll take that proposal so you don't have to redo it. Yeah. I love that. Vule told us about yes. that. He was um, he was kind enough to, to do a long interview with us at a conference uh, two years ago. No, a year ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm so confused with time. And um, I just, it was like an apocryphal story when he first told him, like, no, that's not. You know, You're making that up. <laughs> just the idea. Um, and um, Amanda and I are both board members of the Grand Professionals Association. And um, I also, um, as a part of that role, serve with the grant, an awards committee that includes the grant maker of the year. And I had an, as a part of that selection process, it's a very simple application that is open and very easy to do um, for the nomination. But I had the privilege of um, doing an interview with a foundation that turned out to be the winning foundation, and one of the reasons why was that they um, pretty much disbanded the role of their program officers and even um, making the final decisions about who receives funding. They had their program, this was um, um, uh, in New England, and it was an environmental foundation, but it was really social justice, because I don't have to tell you how they're related and so they were so they were like we need to make it so easy for these very um intensive but very grassroots focused very localized um organizations that may or may not be nonprofits to work with us so the program officers fanned out and like local libraries and local businesses and folks could come in you know like maybe it's a bus ride versus a plane ride or maybe walk in and um fill out their applications then and there and they would talk them through it and then the then um the first grant making committee was sort of formed by the organization but then after that they're like well, we should not be the people who decide who's on the committee that doesn't make sense so it became the the former recipients who then invited other people so it just is a beautiful process and it gave me so much hope to see that think about all the other grant makers who are are not doing that yet um and and um I know that I know that you work with grant makers to affect change for marginalized communities or to help strengthen that connection or make that connection as just a tiny sidebar Amanda and I have talked about this a lot like what can we do because as grant reviewers sometimes we'll be grant reviewers for different things and 
we'll review and it's, you know, you have this criteria and you're going through and it's like the people who have or who have the biggest need as dem- as called for to demonstrate in the um, proposal are the ones who often are doing two and three things at a time, like your example of the woman who is the sole English speaker, it, you know, and they're doing all these things. And so as a result, they don't have resources or time to either um, learn the ins and outs of jumping through all the hoops that you need for a grant application um, or, yeah, just may not ha- just may not even have the time. But when you look at their statistics and what they're presenting, it's so clear that they demonstrate the most need, but they're the least likely to get funded because of the way the scoring system is even set up. So that was a very, very long segue into my (laughs) next question for you. (laughs) But we have, um, we and a lot of our listeners um, are working to, for nonprofits that serve of color or um, communities of people with different abilities. And how can we as grant professionals um, best work with NCRP to bring about more change? Because we're ready. Yes, we want to help. I want it with please, please, I enough. Think we're, we're all beyond ready. Oh. Um, so... I would say, uh, just as you shared, like a really good example, uh, something that NCRP tries to do is to highlight examples when we have it. So we have, you know, we also have awards that we give out um, in a lot of our project areas. We will highlight um, examples of who's doing this work well. So I think, you know, the more that we can like really highlight and like big up like people who are doing this really well, uh, we should do more of that. Uh, Too often, I think society rewards you know, the traits that we say we don't value. And I find that so interesting. (laughs) So, you know, the more we can be models of that, I think is key. Um, So NCRP, like I said, uh, we were founded by folks who felt like nonprofits were missing from conversation about philanthropy. We're still very much Mm -hmm. rooted in that. And we have a nonprofit membership program, which was the work that I was hired to do at NCRP and uh, is near and dear to my heart. And so um, we have free resources on our website. We're really well known for the research that we Mm -hmm. do. Um, and so I would go to NCRP's website. I would look at different things. You can search for the issue area that you're working in. Um, if you need help or are looking for something, you can reach out to us. and I'm sure we can point you in the right direction. Um, but we put things out, even though it is geared to like speak towards philanthropy in most cases. Um, we put things out so that you all can have hardcore research that can speak to the value of your work. Um, and so you might want to pull a line or two. And some of those um, proposals that you're submitting so you can talk about like NCRP said, you know, mm-hmm, XYZ. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then our nonprofit membership program for folks who want to have a deeper relationship with us, who want to be more involved in the advocacy that we're doing. Um, it is meant to not be a barrier uh, to for folks to join. So that was something that was really important to our board. And so mm-hmm. Uh, it is affordable to be a part of the membership program. Um, it's a yearly nice. membership uh, right now, we're not even doing renewals because we recognize the times. And oh, so nice. um, folks can come on board and not have to worry about that. Um, but, you know, it's set up for like tangible benefits. So mm-hmm. we have like discounts to DNO insurance and things like that. Okay. Um, but we're also set up to help to do, um, I guess I could say kind of introductions. Uh, we recognize that one of the barriers is that once again, people don't have access to different spaces. And so if we're speaking to folks in different philanthropic spaces, we try to bring nonprofit members with us who can mm-hmm. speak 
you know, to those issues and can be lifted up as the experts that they are. Uh, we try to have internal spaces. Um, so we had a summer series over the summer uh, where we brought in some of our philanthropic allies who could have like really honest conversations with our members and they could share too. It was like a two-way learning process and sharing nice. and it was really beautiful. Um, and I, I think that that was possible due to the work that we've done too to kind of level the playing field and make sure that our members know they can be as honest and you know as real as they need to be in those spaces. Um, and then, you know, we we do a lot of advocacy work. And so um, something that we are aiming to do this year is to bring more of that, um, I guess, more home for our members. Um, so we have been doing work in like a pro-immigrant space. We're getting into some other areas more deeply, um, but we have, you know, a focus on different movement areas. And so even within that, um, you know, I can think of my colleague who works in the pro-immigrant space. And um, some of the work he's been doing in deep in different communities with funders there to make sure like our members can speak to them and, you know, talk about the change that needs them, like their institutions. Wow. I have a quick, Amanda's like, big surprise. You want to ask him? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's sort of a comment and a question. Um, I think the work you're doing is so important. And I think it's also kind of a, a good buffer maybe you you were talking about leveling the playing field because as when i was an employee of a nonprofit working as a grant writer i would just you know bitch and moan about the process and you know what i'm an i um, am an educated middle-aged white lady i had a lot going for me in terms of privilege to even be doing this work at these agencies but i would still be like why do they ask for all these documents why are they doing this oh their portal doesn't work yeah, 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 yeah. and um but at the end when usually at most proposals particularly nowadays i think amanda you probably agree they they'll say you know uh question number 12 uh, what feedback can you give us about the application process and you know i'm like going it was very nice. I appreciated your, and inside I'm like, y'all, this is wrong what you're asking. But as an employee, I was afraid to put that because I was evaluated on how much grant funding I got. You know where I'm going with this. But, you know, I was evaluated by that. I'm like, oh, if I, if I really speak out and, um, and really tell them exactly what I think politely, but exactly what I think about their crazy, crazy application process and how much time it takes, I will probably reduce my chances of this organization getting out and doing the work they need because I'm having a moment. So I think it's important to provide those safer spaces. Now, I, I cannot say whether or not that would have torpedoed any funding that I sent out, but I just had the feeling that it would. And But now that I am a consultant, I... Um, and I'm older, I just feel much freer to speak out and talk about these things. But I think it's so important for organizations um, like yours to sort of provide that, to help disrupt what was a seriously inequitable relationship from the get-go, I guess is what I'm basically saying. So yeah. thanks for that. It is very much needed. As you were talking, uh, you just made me think about systemic problems. Yeah, it's like literally yes. the system <laughs> that is not working. 
um, and places burden on certain people more so than others and doesn't allow you to speak honestly about it. And because of incentives, um, that also is like a barrier too, to be honest. And so I think um, that is a reflection of this larger world that we live in in some ways. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely, it's just, it's a microcosm of a much bigger, of a much bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, Janae, what it's been um, like focusing on social justice in the last several months, Um, because I can only imagine that it's just everything has kind of been ratcheted up a notch. Yeah, um, it's been it's been tough. It's been exhausting. Um, I had a meeting. It was like external to work just in some of the like volunteer spaces I show up in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was on a call with someone and it was just like. And it took me a minute to like get myself together. I was like, sure. Okay, sorry. And the person was like, I totally understand because they were in the same boat. And I think, you know, um, in some ways it can kind of just be mentally exhausting. Like we're living through a pandemic. We're living through so many different things. Um, and then, you know, on top of it, um, there is racism within everything that we're, we're living through. And so um, I think, you know, early on uh, it was like, I had inklings that there were going to be inequities in the way that the pandemic rolled out. I was thinking of, you know, who really can like work from home anyway, um, who has childcare, those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. Um, And then uh, I think one day I saw the numbers from DC come out. uh, And then later that day, you know, I wrapped up work and was probably about to take my dog out, I think. And I walked into a room with my phone in my hand and I looked down and saw the numbers from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, which again is um, my hometown. Right. Right. And uh, I think at the time they were saying like 70% of the deaths were in the black community. I literally took my breath away, like literally sure. took my breath away. Uh, and then after that, I started to see similar things come out of Louisiana. I think Milwaukee was another city I saw. Um, and so it kind of felt like, you know, a movie where a volcano was going to erupt and the scientist is running around telling everybody and no one's listening, and then the volcano erupts, and a whole bunch of stuff that could have been prevented, you know, happens. And so it's like, for people who've been doing this work, uh, we've been running around for years, and, uh, you know, granted, lots of people much longer than I have, of saying America is deeply inequitable. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the ways that this is hurting our society. And this pandemic is just really exploiting that um, and showing us the ramifications of you know the ugliness of racism uh, that we can have people in certain communities where they get hit with this and it is just like devastating or leads to death more so than other folks um and so you know it's it's been a lot um to to be a part of these communities that um are more at risk uh to know people who are a part of them to have you know my loved ones in in these communities um and I know that for sure for the organizations I work with, you know, pretty similar stories as well. And so, you know, it's kind of layers um, to to this work at this time. Um, but honestly, like I'm, I'm thankful for wonderful colleagues um, at NCRP and beyond who have been fantastic, um, you know, in ways that I hope, you know, we can all talk openly about how our, our places of business have responded, because uh, I think that has been a model in itself of just being care, you know, being um, concerned about the person first. Um, and then, you know, when I think of the organizations that I work with who have been, you know, personally devastated in some cases, 
um, and are still showing up every day to do this right. work and to care for communities. Um, and, you know, then we had, you know, the uprisings too, and that added another mm-hmm. layer. Um, and I know, you know, some people interpreted that as, well, I don't know how they interpreted it, but it was not in the way that it was. Uh, for people who are watching it, and I think a lot of us are watching it and just, you know, hoping and praying that uh, people who felt like they needed to go out um, to protest the injustices that we saw um, knew that the virus was dangerous, right. but they knew that we faced something that was, you know, even greater a threat to um, people of color. Um, and so there were some people who were looking at it like it was a dance party. It's like, no, you know, we're all... Um, you know, watching this and are like terrified that something else is going to happen. And I'm thankful that, you know, safety precautions were put in place. And, um, you know, we didn't see any kicks in uptakes and um, in uh, transmission of the virus through those events. Uh, How about that, Janae? Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Do you think it was because people were wearing their masks? Because you're so polite. I'm like, y'all wear your damn masks. I'm so (laughs) over you. Put your mask on. I don't want to hear about it. I just, wear your damn masks. But people were wearing masks when they could at these events. My stepdaughter attended one. And as as a mom, I'm like, oh, 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 don't go. But the other part of me is like, go, go, wear your mask, wear your mask. You know, so it's, yeah, I just, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you're just, I just, yeah, everybody wear your mask. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. You can tweet at me all day long. Come tweet at me. (laughs) Well, and I think it all boils down to something Janae said. She said, you're concerned about the person first. Yes. Wouldn't that be just a beautiful world if that was how everybody operated, whether it was your boss, your neighbor, your coworker, the person standing next to you in a protest? I mean, I just, that's my dream world. I, um, I have seen some moments of grace in very small ways, in conversations that I've had with family members and friends where where I've, un- together, we've uncovered opinions that are different. And I have had to, in my grandmother Hayes' world, words, bridle my tongue in order to speak a truth in a way that could be received, she said diplomatically. But I also see bigger um and, and growth in myself and recognizing things that, that I carry and, and things to get out there. But um, I guess in all the horrible things that are going on, I do see some moments of grace and some moments of change that, that are happening that are positive. I see a lot of scary shit too, but I'm, but mainly um, I want to focus on the, on the positive things. And I guess that just leads into my question of um, the the lessons that you hope people may learn uh, through through um, NCRP's work in this area, and and what your hopes would be for those outcomes moving forward. Like at the end of that ten-year strategic plan, you know, what 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 do you think? What are your hopes for those kinds of outcomes? For sure. Um, so I joined NCRP, and one of the reasons that I was kind of drawn to the work uh, is that the organization said before I was hired, um, and they still, this is still true, uh, that they were committed to addressing the root causes of systemic issues. So as you all expressed earlier, um, you know, beyond ready to kind of move forward with something new. And I think uh, this 
situation, uh, as terrible as it has been, um, has, you know, led to us living in ways that we never would have or knew were possible. Um, and so I'm hoping that with that, people are also not afraid to move into something new. Um, something that I was uh, reminded of was the story of Radoshi. Um, and so she was the, uh, I think it was like last April, a researcher in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, you know, came across her story and they realized that at the time she was the last known survivor of Clotilda, which was the um, last uh, ship that came, uh, that took enslaved Africans from Africa to, okay. uh, they were in Mobile, Alabama, I believe. Um, and so it talked about her story. She was 12 years old at the time. She was forced to marry on the ship. Um, she was purchased by the founder of the Bank of Selma. Um, and then five years after, she was free um, because of you know freedom in the United States. And right. so she stayed on her plantation for the duration of her life. Um, but then I found like what I felt was more positive um, upbeat aspects of it. And so um, upbeat is not the right word. More positive aspects. I found sure. what was sure. more positive aspects of it. And that was that she encountered a, an activist of the day. Um, and the person's name was uh, Amelia Boynton Robinson, mm-hmm. um, who, when I shared this story with colleagues of mine, informed me that Amelia is the mother of a board member of an organization that we work with. And so wow. my mind was blown for the day. Because <laughs> that's a lot of history that you just, that, that's a direct connection to a lot of history. Yeah. So my yeah. mind was blown. I sent messages to friends as I was like processing through this. Um, and it was like the first time that, you know, I felt like a more direct connection to that time period. Sure. Um, I think, you know, for lots of people, I can speak for myself. Sometimes it's hard to kind of place these things in history. Um, I'm, I like history a lot. I spend a lot of time probably watching my documentaries and things like that. But it just felt, you know, much more real for some reason uh, because it was like directly connected to this work. And, you know, I can get into more about the journey of why I let I was led to this work another time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I think that there's a bit of like cognitive dissonance and mm-hmm. that people of today don't necessarily see um, that today is a continuation of years past. And so. Uh, it makes people, you know, be able to say, oh, yeah, slavery was terrible or that time period was terrible or, you know, the 60s were terrible. But today, it's you know, all gone. Was, yeah. oh, it's, oh, that was in the past. And it's yeah. really not. Um, and so, you know, I'm hopeful that people can make more connections to the things that we are experiencing today and going through. And so like some of the examples I gave earlier um, again, that we are living in a continuation of those practices. And I hope that that makes them uh, work more expeditiously to, you know, make changes within their organizations. Um, a lot of people like to move slowly to change or a little bit of change here and then we'll come back and we'll, you know, it's like, no, these are people's lives um, that are being impacted. And so I hope, you know, we see ourselves in the people of the past. Uh, we don't have to think too hard about what we would have done in the past if we look at it that way. And we have an opportunity before us today, especially, you know, with um, this new normal that is kind of being brought about in this moment to to take that opportunity and to do something totally different and transformative. So 
that's the lesson that I hope, um, you know, NCRP is always here to be an asset to people, whether they're in philanthropy uh, or if they're nonprofits, would love to, you know, meet you all and work with you. Um, and, you know, that's the future that we're working towards. And so if anyone is also hoping for that, um, whether you are, you know, a person with grand authority in your organization or you're someone who wants to, you know, make uh, headway in the different ways that you can, the things that have been like placed in your hands, we would love to work with you and get to know you. So we're always there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, a beautiful point to end our conversation with on. <laughs> Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Janae. Uh, we really appreciate all the work your organization is doing and y'all are doing so much. I'm sitting here thinking, surely you have thousands of employees who are making all this magical work happen, right? And I'm guessing that is not the case. So um, if you would please pass along our thanks um, yes. to your coworkers for the great work that you all are doing. Um, and if people want to learn more about your organization, what, what are ways they can reach out? You know, if you want to give your website and contact information, that For would be sure. fabulous. Um, you all can visit ncrp.org. And uh, there we have phone numbers and things that you can reach out to. And if anyone wants to reach out to me directly, it's Richmond, like the city, at ncrp.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you again to our season three sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com, to learn more. Remember, y'all, there is no specific college degree in grant writing or fundraising yet, but there are a lot of good people with experience to share, training programs, and other ways to learn. We'd love for this podcast to be part of your professional development lineup. And you know something else we'd love? We would love for you to go and review our podcast, especially if you like it. If you don't yeah. like it, just take your time. You don't have to review it right away. But in all seriousness, you know, most of you are finding our podcast on um, Apple Podcasts. And so we would love it if you would go put a review on there. We would love it even more if it was five star and all fancy. And, you know, you wrote about, you laughed, you cried, whatever. But please, please, uh, if the spirit moves you, please review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and just help us get the word out about all these important conversations that you are joining in with us to have. Yep. Speaking of conversations, we want you to stay tuned for the final episode in two weeks of ah! season three. Ah, final episode. <laughs> I don't know why I just did that, but let's just, let's go. With it. No, never mind. Um, <laughs> I was going to say something and then I thought it's not funny. Well, just stopped. Anyway, we are wrapping the season with our top 10 favorite things of the year. Yes. And we've got some fabulous things to share. So you don't want to miss out. Be sure to join us. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.